Well, welcome to EU's public meeting. If I haven't met you before, my name's Rowan Kemp and I lead the staff team that works alongside the EU here on campus. And this week we start an exciting look at the opening chapters of the Christian Bible, Genesis chapters 1 through 12, which will continue after the mid-semester break. These opening chapters of the Christian Bible are of universal significance. Now, you might need to stop and think about that for a moment. That is a big call that I'm making. I'm not just claiming that they are significant for Christians, nor that they're just significant for Jews and Muslims, both of whom regard these texts as significant. I'm saying these chapters are universally significant. They tell us universal truths that are relevant for all people in every place, at every time, from every cultural background. I mean, that's what universal means. Now, on its own, that is an incredible claim for me to make. What right do I have, one person, and a privileged white male at that, to speak with any authority or even insight into all countries, all cultures, all backgrounds, across all possible times? I can't possibly know all the ins and outs of all the cultures of the world, let alone across millennia. So I don't have that insight, nor that authority. It's not me who's making the claim that these opening chapters of the book of Genesis are universally significant. In these chapters, it's the one true living God who is making this claim. It's his word to this world. And so what we're going to do over these weeks is look carefully at what these chapters say so that we can hear what this God says. Now, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, then I hope this will deepen your understanding of these chapters and ultimately of your love for the Lord Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then I hope that this will give you an insight into what the Christian Bible teaches about the world, about this one true living God who made it all, and even an insight into who you are in this world in which you find yourself. So we're going to jump straight in. We just had read for us the opening chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is controversial. It has always been controversial, though for different reasons across the millennia. My goal is to try to point a path through that controversy for us. So it would be helpful if you could have it open in front of you, pull it up on your phone or a Bible if you brought one with you, biblegateway.com is a useful site if you're not sure where to go. Let me put us through a few things. What do you notice when we first read through Genesis chapter 1? Well, you might have picked a few of these things that we went through. First of all, the account is highly stylized. You probably picked that up as we heard read. There's lots of repeated phrases, lots of patterns. Let me point out a few. The creation occurs over seven days, which mirrors the number of days in the Jewish week, and Genesis chapter 1 had its origins coming out of Jewish culture. Also, each day starts the same way, with God speaking. It all starts, and God said. But each day also ends the same way. And there was evening, and there was morning, the blank day, which then bridges you through to when the next day begins. And throughout the account, there's quite a few repeated phrases. After God speaks about the creation of something, we're often told, and it was so. You can see this, you've got your Bible there, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
or verse 6 and 7, and God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. Or verse 9, And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and the dry ground appear, and it was so. Not only are we reminded repeatedly of the effectiveness of God's word in that repeated phrase, and it was so, we're also told of the goodness of what God creates. Repeated throughout the account is the phrase, and God saw it, whatever he just created, he saw that it was good. You can see that in verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, and so on. But there's even more patterning here when you dig deeper. Days 1 to 3 and days 4 to 6 mirror each other in the realm in which each day focuses. Let me show you. Day one focuses on the separation between light and dark. And that's mirrored by day four, which has the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars, and in verse 18, that separate the light from the darkness. And similarly, as you go on through the account, day two focuses on the creation of the vault or the firmament, which separates the water below, the seas, from the water above. Where else does the rain come from if there's not some sort of reservoir of water above the sky in the world view of the writer? Day five then focuses on the creation of creatures that will live in those realms the fish in the sea and the birds in the air. And then if you keep going, day three focuses on the creation of the land and the vegetation, and day six focuses on the creation of the creatures that will live in that space, both animals and humankind. So I could go on. That's not the end of the patterning in the account. But you get the idea. This is a very stylized account. Not like other historical prose that you find in the Bible. It's not even like the narrative we get in chapter 2 about Adam and Eve. God has given us, through the human author, a highly patterned, stylized account of creation. That should give you pause as to how you read it and what you should expect to find when you read it. Now, the second thing to notice from the text is that it's making a theological point. This opening chapter of the Christian Bible is making an important statement about who God is, how he acts, and the status of what he does. Let's pull that apart. In terms of who he is, God is the sole creative agent in this chapter. He is the one driving the whole of the action. But unlike other creation stories from the ancient Near Eastern people, the world does not pop into being as the result of two gods fighting each other. Nor is God depicted as having to battle against forces of evil to create the world. Nor is he depicted as being inherent within the things he creates, as though the sun and the moon were manifestations of God. Now here, God alone creates in absolute freedom and power, and he is clearly distinct from everything else that he creates. God the creator is not to be confused with his creation. But Genesis 1 also emphasises that God acts by speaking. He creates by his word. He speaks, and it is so. It's powerful testimony 
to the power of this God's word that when he says, let there be light, let there be land, let there be plants, the universe obediently complies. That's power. This is our family dog, Charlie. Charlie insists on barking like a crazy thing every time someone walks past our house. And I mean every time. And we live on a corner block. It is extremely tiring for the human residents of our house. But for him, no, he loves it. He believes that this is his calling in life. He's fulfilling his God-ordained purpose when he barks like a crazy thing at anyone who walks past. Now, I say repeatedly, Charlie, no barking. I do not know how many thousands of times I've uttered that, that command. Charlie, no barking. And how effective have my words been? Zip. None. My words are not powerful. Imagine saying, let there be plants and the universe compliant. Let there be light. And it was so. God is powerful in his word. And what God creates through his word, in fact all he does, it is we saw that repeatedly, that God said, and he saw what he made, and it was good, and then if you go to the very end, the sixth day of verse 31, we read, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So Genesis chapter 1 is making a clear theological statement about who the one true living God is, that he alone is creator, created in absolute freedom and power, that he's not to be confused with the creation he's made, he creates by speaking, by means of his powerful word, and what he creates is good, indeed very so what have we noticed so far? We have a highly stylized account of creation, making important theological points about the one true living God, about who he is, how he acts, and the status of what he does. But the question which bothers us, and which fuels many an internet hot, is how does this highly stylized account fit with what science tells us about the world? This might be a question you've asked might be a question that you've been posed in a rather condemning way by your lecturers here at university. Oh, those Christians who believe that crazy stuff about creation. Maybe it's a question that your friends have asked at different times. Or kids in the youth group in which you serve. How does Genesis 1 fit with our contemporary understanding of what science tells us about the world? Now the non-Christian position is that, well, frankly, these don't fit together. Science gives us a reliable account of the history of the cosmos going back to the Big Bang, and this account in Genesis doesn't fit at all with that scientific account, so we reject Genesis 1 as pre-scientific rubbish. Now, obviously, evangelical Christians who hold to the authority of the Bible as God's living word to us are not going to accept that line of reasoning. But the question still remains, how are we going to reconcile the insights of contemporary science with this account in Genesis chapter 1? Now, Christians have taken a few different approaches to this question. It's helpful for me to outline them for you. There's the young earth creationists. This view is that the events described in Genesis chapter 1 are meant to be understood literally. 
God brought the whole universe into being in seven 24-hour periods, and following the genealogies with the later Genesis, you can then calculate the age of the Earth to approximately 6,000 years old. Now that clearly presents a problem for modern science, which claims the Earth is 4.5 billion years old and the universe is in excess of 13 billion years old. The conclusion for young Earth creationists is God would not get this stuff wrong and he means us to read his word in a literal way, so the science must be mistaken somehow. Secondly, there's the old Earth creationists. This view is that the days in Genesis 1 are not literal 24-hour periods, but epochs, or ages of time. In this view, Genesis 1 still sets out a sequence of events by which God brought all things into being, but in long stages. Third view is what I call the framework view. This sees Genesis 1 as a literary device to provide a framework for understanding the world, along with God and our place in it, and not as a literal account of the physical events of creation. It, it interprets Genesis 1 more like a parable or a piece of poetry. The account is not meant to be understood literally, but as a narrative composed to communicate theological truths about God, the world, and us. But I want to raise a different option. When we ask the question, how does Genesis 1 fit with modern science, I think we're starting with the wrong question. The question we should always first ask when reading the Bible is how would the original readers have understood this text before we ask, how does it fit with my contemporary understanding? And the key point here, it seems to me, is that the original readers were more concerned with functions than material origins. I'll explain what I mean. See, the question we bring to the text when we think about the world is, where did all this stuff come from? The stars, the plants, us. How did all of this come into material existence? But that in itself is a question that has its roots back in Greek philosophy with its distinction between the material and the, and the spiritual, or the body and the soul, and that preoccupation with the material origin of things has dominated the scientific worldview and shaped the very way you and I think. So that when you think of creation, you think about spontaneous emergence of material stuff. That's what you think the word creation must be about, because you've been so influenced by that worldview. But if we started with the Greek, if that started with the Greeks and dominates our scientific worldview, that does not mean that was the question the original readers of Genesis 1 would have been asking. If we'd asked an ancient Israelite, did God make all the stuff, did he bring it into material existence, the answer would have been, of course, where else could it come from? But the questions they were more likely to ask, and other ancient Near Eastern peoples, were questions like, what's the purpose of this stuff? What's its function? Who gave it its function and place in the universe? That is, creation was more about ordering the stuff, giving it function and purpose, rather than bringing it into material existence. Well, let me show you a couple of pieces of evidence in Genesis 1 that point us in this very direction. First, you noticed before, in verse 2, that there's pre-existing stuff that doesn't tell us where it came from. In verse 2, there's the waters, the surface of the deep. Where did this come from? Why doesn't God speak them into existence like other bits of the universe? 
Well, maybe the answer is that the concern of the text is not where does the stuff come from, but what's God going to do with the matter? How is it going to bring purpose and function from this? Second piece of evidence, the verb translated create can refer to bringing something into material existence, but it's also used in the Old Testament to refer to giving something a function, a functional existence. I'll give you an example. Uh, Psalm 51 verse 10, well-known verse, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When David, the author of that psalm, prays that prayer, create in me a clean heart, O God, he's not asking for a new physical heart. He's not asking for something to come into material existence. The word create is being used to request a new functional existence, a heart with new standing before God. The point is simple. In the Old Testament, to create does not necessarily mean materialise a new physical thing. It can be give something that already, already exists a new functional existence or purpose. Third piece of evidence, there's strong emphasis in Genesis 1 itself on purpose and function. That's clear as in days 3 to 6. So, for example, in verse 14, if you've got there, day 3, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light to the earth. Notice all the purpose clauses there. And you can see similarly in verses 17 and 18, plus in the commands to be fruitful and multiply to the sea creatures and the birds in verse 22, and as we'll see next week in the creation of humanity in verses 26 to 30. Purpose and function predominate. So John Walton, who's one Old Testament scholar who has this view, he says this, Cosmic creation in the ancient world was not viewed primarily as a process by which matter was brought into being, but as a process by which functions, roles, order, jurisdiction, organisation and stability were established. Creation was an activity of bringing functionality to a non-functional condition rather than bringing material substance into a situation in which matter was absent. So what does all this mean? Genesis 1 is more concerned to identify the one true living God as the one who creates functionality and purpose order, assigning things to their proper place, structuring the universe so that it works in an orderly fashion, and commanding the elements of his world to be fruitful. More concerned with those things than how he actually created the birds and whether the birds are related to dinosaurs and whether stars, how they came into being and whether the sun is the same age as the other stars or not. Those are material questions. And without doubt, the Bible's answer is that God did bring everything into material existence. But quite possibly the concern of Genesis 1 is not with the material origin questions, but rather the questions about function purpose, fruitfulness that we see in the world and how the one true living God is related to it all. And that, frankly, is a much more profound truth than merely just who or what brought the world into material existence. Because if the one true living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, if He's the one who set up this world in the way that you and I experience it, then what we're really talking about there is ownership. Whose world is this? 
Well, Genesis 1 says unambiguously and universally, this world is this God's. It all belongs to him because he's the one who set it all up as we experience it. Later in the Bible, we see this explicitly confirmed in Psalm chapter 24. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, we read, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. A clear reference back to Genesis chapter 1. If God is the one who sets the purpose and function of everything that is, that has profound implications for our relationship to him and to the rest of the world. If even we belong to him, it's right to ask, well, what does he want of us? In fact, that becomes the most fundamental question that we can ask. And God doesn't leave us in any doubt. He answers that question for us. It's this. If this is how things are, then we have to put him first before anything else. The Bible talks about this in terms of worship. Who or what are you living in service of? Or to ask the question a different way. Who is the sun at the centre of your universe? Or who calls the shots in your game of life? Or who or what do you love above all else? Who or what do you fear above all else? Who is your master? The Bible is clear that since there is only one true living God, there is only one appropriate answer to all of those questions, amongst the thousands of alternative answers. And it's captured right at the very end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, in a vision given him by the Lord Jesus, the Apostle John hears what he calls an eternal gospel. A gospel is a grand public announcement from God. That's what gospel means. But this is an eternal gospel. It's current for all time and to all people. Let me read what John records. He says, Then I saw another angel flying in mid-air, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, here it is, here's the eternal message from God, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. No matter where you live or what race or language you belong to, God's eternal announcement is the same. Fear him. That is, show him an appropriate respect and honour as the one and only living God. And give him glory. That is, have him as your proper focus. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the springs. That's God's eternal message to all of his creatures, to you and to me. Worship him who created it all, including you. And yet that's the very thing that we so easily and regularly fail to do. We refuse to worship the one true living God who formed all this. And instead, in the language of Romans 1, we exchange that truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things. Now, you might not consider yourself a worshipper of any sort, but the reality is we all give ourselves 
in service to other things. Something or someone is calling the shots in your life. It might be your parents and their expectations of you. It might be your own ambition for success and importance. Maybe it's your drive to secure your future via financial stability or your drive for sex or for travel or for experiences. It might be your, your need for friends that is at the centre of your world. Or maybe it's your need for revenge. Or maybe it's your need to just be absolutely free of anybody else's call on your life. Whatever. Who or what are you living for? Who is the sun at the centre of your universe? Who or what do you love above all else? Who or what do you fear? Who's your master? That's what you're worshipping. But the message of the Christian Bible is that we've been made to worship the Creator, not the creation. And that verse in Revelation 14 is pretty clear. Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. This is not a message from God that you can just put off. The hour is coming, the Bible tells us, when we will all stand before Jesus Christ as our judge and answer for who we have worshipped. A right response to what God has shared with us here in Genesis 1 is to worship Him, the Creator, not His creation. Which brings us directly to Jesus. The rest of the Bible teaches us that this Creator God has come amongst us as Jesus of Nazareth. When Christians worship Jesus, they're not worshipping a creature. They're worshipping the Creator, who has come amongst His creation as one of us. So speaking about Jesus, Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says, In Him, that is Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. All things have not just been created through Jesus, God's eternal word, but for him as well. I can see some of the famous EU green t-shirts here today. You know what the EU t-shirt famously declares on, its, on, on the reverse side. Jesus is Lord. That is, He is Master, King, Ruler. He is God Himself. This world is His. It all exists through Him and for Him. My dog Charlie exists for Him. What is my mind? I exist for Him. You exist for Him. This university, whether it, well, it doesn't, but it exists for him. The whole created order, through Jesus and for Jesus. To worship the one true living God, the God of Genesis 1, is inseparable from worshipping Jesus, who, as Paul says later in Colossians, is the one in whom all the fullness of deity lives in bodily which brings me then to the final implication. And it's about ethics. How to live well in this world. And that's a question that pretty much every single human being asks. How do I live well in this world with all of its complexities? 
Those who deny the possibility of God are challenged, I think, to see or defend a universal purpose to this world. If we are just the product of blind and pitiless evolutionary forces, then whatever purpose you might perceive in the world is at best just a subjective agreement that you and a few other people have come to, or at worst, it's a mere personal fiction. There is no purpose. But against such heartless gloom, the one true living God says, no, don't believe that lie. I have made all of this for good purposes and ends. I've organised the whole world into nature and kind with goals and ends, which reveals to you not just the purpose for which I gloriously made you, but actually the purpose of all the things around you and your relationship to them and to me. There is a universal basis for ethics and living well in the world. Namely, the order with which the one true living God has wonderfully organised this world in which he's placed us. And that ordering is profound and extensive and universal. It encompasses our relationships to one another, our relationship to the environment around us, our relationship with animals, it shapes the way we relate to our families, our work in this world, the way we understand and relate to ourselves, our biology, our sexuality, our ambitions, our desires, our struggles. It will take the rest of the Bible to fill out that picture, but the foundation for a universal and comprehensive ethic is laid here in Genesis chapter 1, in the ordering and purposes God has in his creation. We're going to start to explore this more when we come back after Easter when we continue the Genesis series and ask the question, what is it to be human? But today we're left with a clear answer from God to our first question. Whose work? This work is his. We are his. And he calls us in love and compassion to put him at the centre, to worship his son Jesus as Lord. There is comfort and challenge in that call but also urgency for the hour of his judgment when he will hold us accountable for who we've chosen to worship. That hour is close. So if you haven't thought hard about the Lord Jesus, then next week you'll be hoping it's a great opportunity to do just that. We're going to be paused this Genesis series, even though we've just begun, and have a one-off special thinking about Easter. And Brian, one of the EU staff, is going to come and address the question, has God ghosted us? That would be a really good opportunity to invite some of your friends to hear the Easter good news about the Lord Jesus. So to be a bit bold this week, invite them along. You never know how God might use it in their life or in yours to bring you to know the love of God for them in the Lord Jesus in profound and life-giving ways. So I hope you can join us next week. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyuneeu.org.